We're continuing on in these travel stories in the Gospel of Luke. We're following Jesus as he makes his way from Galilee in the north, where he was raised, to Jerusalem in the south, where he was raised up on a cross. And as he makes his way, we listen to the stories Jesus tells, stories that are unique in the Gospel of Luke, these parables that work to shape our imagination and to open us up, inviting us into the kingdom of God. So as we turn to this week's story, I invite you again to begin by lifting up your hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gates lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While suffering and being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance and Lazarus by his side. And he shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevasse has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot, and neither can anyone come from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He must warn them so that they do not come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, no, father, uh, if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will change their hearts and lives. And Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So in the introduction to his book, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. I think the same could be said of hell itself, that Christians too often fall into one or the other of these equal and opposite sides, either disbelieving in hell or at least never talking about it, or 
obsessing over it. In our context, we're more likely to be guilty of the first. And so while I don't think the main purpose of this parable is to talk about heaven and hell, you are likely now thinking about it. You are likely now wondering about it. And so because it includes the backdrop, it presents a backdrop for the story, I want to talk about it a little bit this morning. Just don't get too invested and fall off on the other side. The simplest reason for why we have to talk about hell as Christians is because Jesus did. Too many still believe the lie that Jesus was all about love and the God of the Old Testament was anger and wrath, when in reality, both were both. It's the same God. No one in scripture talks about hell as much as Jesus. It's not even close. And when Jesus talked about hell, he tended to talk about it as a place outside of God's presence. He told stories about a a sorting that was going to take place at the end of days, that he would be the judge that would sort people out. Some would be gathered into his presence and some would be pushed out of it, a sorting, an in and an out. And the word Jesus used for hell, that outside place, was Gehenna, which originally referred to a valley outside the city of Jerusalem where filth and trash and dead animals were put and then burned. Picture a post-apocalyptic flaming landfill and you're in the ballpark. Interestingly, that's the sort of place Lazarus might have lived. Outside the city gates because he was unclean with open sores on his body, scouring for scraps of food for anything to find subsistence in life. A place like Gehenna. We might call it hell on earth, but in reality, it was a place so terrible that its name became synonymous with an eternal place like it. Now, the other thing Jesus says pretty clearly about hell is that there's a chasm, a crevasse between heaven and hell that cannot be crossed from either side. One of the ways Christians sometimes get more comfortable with the idea of hell is inserting a notion that everyone will have an opportunity after dying to then make one final decision about following Jesus or not. Wherever we got that idea, it wasn't from Jesus. And all of this makes us pretty uncomfortable And we're uncomfortable because we love our neighbors and live in a day when we are in regular contact with kind people who don't believe Jesus is Lord. Whether they're Jews or Muslims or Buddhists or agnostics or atheists, it makes us uncomfortable knowing them and talking about something like hell or eternal conscious punishment for non-Christians. Unfortunately, our discomfort doesn't impact whether or not it's true. And we're left to grapple with what Jesus says. So then we come across a story like this and want to pull out of it advice for how to end up in one place or the other, to make it about how we end up here versus there. What was it they did, we wonder. But if we come to this story asking those questions, we're going to be sorely disappointed. 
Because if we look closely, we're not told why Lazarus and the rich man end up where they do. We might assume it's because one is rich and one is poor, but we're not told that. Just that one was and the fortunes are reversed and the other wasn't and likewise. Because this isn't a story about the afterlife, about heaven and hell and eternal destinations. Those are the backdrop for the story, but it's not what the story is about. So what's the story about? I think it's about three things. I think first, it's a story about what Jesus is doing in the present. This story is still part of Jesus' speech following what happened at the beginning of chapter 15. We have to go back a couple weeks, but if you remember, Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling about the company Jesus kept. And so Jesus starts to tell some parables. First, the parables of lost things from a few weeks ago. Then the parable last week of the unjust and dishonest steward. And now Jesus tells this story about the rich man and Lazarus. A classic story of a reversal of fortunes. There's a rich man, eminently visible in the community. He dresses in fine, rich clothing, has lavish feasts every single day. He is visible, famous, popular. He lifts up the honor of the whole village simply by his being there. And then there's Lazarus. Invisible. In fact, the rich man doesn't even seem to notice him until he needs something out of him after they've died. And even then, he won't do him the dignity of speaking to him. He talks to Abraham and asks Abraham to command Lazarus as though he's his servant. And yet Lazarus is the one who is seen in the kingdom of God. Lazarus is the only one in the story, the only one in any parable Jesus ever tells who has a name. The unnamed one, the invisible one, is given a name, made visible, lifted up and placed at the center of the kingdom of God and all that God is doing at the very side in the bosom of Abraham himself. What is Jesus doing? Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? He's making the invisible visible. He's enacting in the present the future reality of God's kingdom. There was an expectation in the day that God would come at some point and sort everything out, establish justice, which means people get what they deserve, leveling out the playing field. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he says, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. I'm doing that thing we've been waiting for. When he begins his ministry in Luke, he quotes Isaiah 61 and says, I come to proclaim good news to the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year, the year when everything would be reset and sorted out. Jesus is doing that in the present He's beginning to do that work of God now, naming the unnamed, making the invisible visible, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, with the blind, the lame, the sick, the disabled, the unclean, the unseen, all of them. This story 
is about what Jesus is doing in the present and how the kingdom of God was breaking into the world about Jesus' resurrection work happening already, not just the afterlife. This story is about what Jesus is doing in the present. But it's also a story about repentance. And we know that for a few reasons, because it's connected to chapters 15 and 16, and these are all stories of repentance. They're thematically connected, but also because of the story itself. Now, biblical experts can tell us that this story Jesus tells is based on a Mediterranean folktale that was well-known. It was widespread. It was told from Egypt to Israel and beyond. A story of a reversal of fortunes in the afterlife. A rich man, a poor man, they die and their paths are flipped. It's a well-known trope. But Jesus changes it a little. He adds an ending that was not known to others. The rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus back to his brothers who are still alive to warn them so they don't come into this place of agony so that they would repent, change their hearts and lives. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, that is. They should listen to them. But the rich man says, if a dead man comes back to life, they'll believe him, they'll repent. And Abraham says, if they don't listen To Moses and the prophets, even a dead man rising will not persuade them. Prescient words where I think Jesus is thinking of his own resurrection not too far into the future. If this is a well-known folktale, though, then the thing we need to pay attention to is what Jesus changes, what he adds, how he twists it to tell his own story. And that's the bit about the five brothers who need to repent. It's left open-ended. It calls to mind the story we already heard. The story Jesus told about the older brother, whose younger brother was lost and found, the father says was dead and made alive again. And though he witnesses this resurrection, he wanted nothing to do with the party of repentance and forgiveness. The father goes out to find him, but the story is left hanging and we're left wondering if he will come in. At the end of this story, we wonder the same thing. Will the five brothers listen to Moses and the prophets? Will they change their hearts and lives and repent? We don't know. This is a story though about repentance. Repentance is turning away from one thing and toward another. It's turning around. It's changing our hearts and lives. But from what and to what? Well, there are hints in the story. The rich man, after all, is a picture of self-sufficiency. His gaudy and expensive clothing, that purple cloth and fine linen, purple was a rare dye and only the richest of the rich could afford to buy clothing dyed with it. He also has a lavish feast every single day, which not only means that his Instagram feed is just off the charts, but the Jewish ear would have perked up every day, even the Sabbath, 
even the day on which we're commanded to rest and commanded to allow our servants and slaves and animals to rest, even on the day we're supposed to be learning that we depend on a good and gracious God to provide for us every day? Yes. It seems he has not learned the lesson of the Sabbath, what it means to rely upon another. He is self-sufficient. He has everything and needs nothing. And he's contrasted with Lazarus, who's covered not with rich clothes, but with sores, who longs just for the scraps that fall from the rich man's table like a dog, and yet instead dogs come and lick his sores. He has nothing. He is utterly in need. And yet he's the character that Jesus names. The only one in any parable given a name, Lazarus. It's a derivative of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God is my help. And maybe there it is. Jesus doesn't come out and say it. He seldom makes it that easy for us, but there's a hint. The rich man who has everything and is entirely self-sufficient and self-focused needs no help. Lazarus has nothing, needs everything, and his identity is, God is my help. In the story of the lost sons, it was the younger son that came to know he was lost, that he was in need, and so he came to taste the full depths of his father's grace. The older son never realized his need. And so never stepped into that generosity of his father. Always stayed outside. Maybe the difference between Lazarus and the rich man isn't poverty and wealth, but need. Lazarus, because he's poor and in agony, knows he needs God's help. His life falls on God being faithful to help. And the rich man, because of his wealth and self-sufficiency, never even thinks about it. And maybe that answers the question of hell too. That in the end, God gives us what we want. That those who spend their lives seeking God as their help, those named Lazarus, in the end receive God's help. And are gathered into God's presence. And those who are self-sufficient will be self-sufficient in the end. That what we trust on in this life is what we get to trust on in the life to come. Independence. Living outside the gates of the new Jerusalem. This is a story of repentance. A story that invites us to wonder whether the five brothers will repent, will change their hearts and lives. Will they realize their need, give up their self-sufficiency and learn the truth of Psalm 124, 8, with which we begin worship every Sunday. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And as their eyes are open to that need to the help who is their God, will they also open their eyes to their invisible neighbors who also need their help? Will they finally see the likes of Lazarus lying outside their gates? Will they see their servants and slaves who have been 
working without God's Sabbath rest? Will they see the poor and the hungry, the sick and disabled? Will they lift their eyes beyond themselves and what they want to ask what help others might need around them? We don't know because the story is actually not about them either. The third thing the story is about is who. Who is the story about? We tend to focus in and ask all our questions and watch closely the rich man. He's the one doing much of the talking and I think we realize we're rich too and should maybe be a little nervous. Is it about him and what he did or didn't do to get here? Or is it about Lazarus? He's named, but doesn't really seem to be doing anything. Is it about Abraham, who does a lot of the speaking? Or the five brothers whom we're left to worry and wonder about at the end? I was honestly wondering who the story was about. And so I asked the question of our Wednesday morning Bible study group, and one of those members, without missing a beat, said, No, it's a story about me. It's a story about how I walk past and ignore so many people who are invisible to me. It's a story about how I believe I'm self-sufficient because of my wealth and freedom and privilege that come only because of the luck of being born here and now. It's a story about how I need to repent and change my heart and life to give up believing that I am my own helper and turn instead to the God whose kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven to turn to Jesus who's making the invisible visible, who's doing resurrection work around us every day, who is to be found not in the halls of power, but in the slums, not in palaces, but in prisons, in hospitals where we cordon off the sick and the hurting, in homes where we send the difficult and dying, in the back rooms where we put the grieving and the lonely and the depressed out of sight and out of mind, anywhere that the poor, the captive, and the blind, the oppressed might be found, that's where Jesus will be. And that's who Jesus is using to build his kingdom. This is a story about me. It's a story that invites me to repentance. For the work of repentance is where our eyes are pried open to our need of Jesus and to Jesus' resurrection work all around us, to the way in which Jesus is making the invisible visible, sorting things out once and for all and bringing good news for all who need to hear it. It's not a story about the afterlife and eternal destinations. It's a story about what Jesus is doing and still doing in the present. It's a story about repentance. And it's a story about me and you. We have Moses and the prophets. We have even seen a man rise from the dead Will we listen? Will we be persuaded? Will we enter by repentance into God's story of resurrection? Will we learn to see the invisible? 
That's what the story's about. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.